Hello, I'm Regina Botras and welcome backstage where we talk with theatre makers from actors, directors, writers, theatre heads and beyond about their life in the theatre and how they got to be where they are now. I am so excited to welcome my guest. It is Russell Cheek. He is a solo performer and was supposed to be touring with his one-man show, Who Am I? Confessions of the Quiz Guy at the moment about his experience on Sale of the Century and what a show it is. He's an actor, director, facilitator and trainer. He's toured the world many times and has an extensive career in showbiz. He's acted with the Sydney Theatre Company, directed with Circus Oz. He's performed on stage, in film, and is a quiz master. He was in the Castanet Club, which has an exhibition at Newcastle Museum at the moment, which we can't visit, unfortunately. He's done many, many things and is really quite good at them. To quote his bio, welcome Russell Cheek. Hi, Regina. Thank you so much. Thanks for coming on. I really want to ask about the Castanet Club, but before we do, where did you grow up and how did you come to the stage? Oh, what, what a lovely question. Thank you. It gives me great opportunity to talk about myself. I love my upbringing. I was brought up in Hamilton South, you know, a very working class the suburb of Newcastle. And uh, I really loved my upbringing. I was opposite a park called Limov Park, and that became my spiritual home for playing rugby league in the winter and cricket in the summer. And I think I knew every blade of grass on that ground, <laughs> and, uh, and I loved it very much. Uh, and I, but I was quite—I was pretty good academically. I went to a very humble uh, but excellent uh, small public school uh, for primary school called Hamilton South Primary and uh, uh-huh. it, it had a real, a really, uh, I don't know, had a really good community feel about it and our school fairs and fates were were really something great and uh, it was academically pretty strong and I did well academically. I always, uh, you know, came first in the class or very near to it and uh-huh. I ended up going to the selective high school called Newcastle Boys High. It's now just called Newcastle High because it's been co-ed for many years but uh-huh. It was just a boys-only school when I was there. Mm-hmm. And once again, academically, it was really terrific. The standard was very high. Mm-hmm. But also we had a lot of stirrers in that school, some really great people like the um, one of the greatest cricket all-rounders Australia has ever produced, a guy called Gary Gilmore. Oh, yeah. Uh, Gus Gilmore, who uh, played for Australia uh, for a very extended time and, you know, in tests and one days. And he was... Uh, a wonderful, funny man. We, we had a lot of uh, hilarious times uh, through our six years of high school. But I, I think this is where, uh, look, I was at, going through high school at, at a most fantastic time because uh, it was, you know, part of my high school was the fabulous uh, uh, watershed year of 1967, which brought out some of the greatest music mm. uh, ever produced uh, in the world there was you know a lot of the Beatles mm-hmm. the Rolling Stones the Who the Small Faces and uh, and here the musical was just beginning and uh, we could not help but be turned on by all this this level of excitement and of course Woodstock happened well Monterey Pop Festival happened in 1967 and seeing the film of mm-hmm. that we came down to Sydney to see the film of that and that was that was exhilarating seeing uh, these things happening in America, this whole counterculture, this, you know, cultural revolution. And um, 
So from that time, uh, you know, particularly 67, 68, 69, and, uh, and the Beatles brought out the White Album at the beginning of 69, and you know, we could not help be seduced by this cultural uh, tsunami of brilliance. <laughs> and I sat next to a, a guy in uh, fifth and sixth form, uh, year 11 and 12, a guy called Jeff Hogg, who became a magistrate. He's just recently retired as a, a magistrate in the Children's Court, a wonderful fellow. We were besties and we used to uh, we used to drum with our pens on the desk all day to the teacher's mm-hmm. absolute chagrin. And, uh, and we fantasised about making a group together and we used to make up band names like uh, the Naked Truth, Tiger Bay. Great. You know, really, because we were quite <laughs> literary. Yeah. And we were doing level one English and all that, you know, majoring in English. But, uh, and hair, the musical came out. But unfortunately, I couldn't, I wasn't allowed to go to Sydney to see it. But that was, you know, listening to hair, the musical, and hearing about the, you know, all the staging of it and uh, the excitement and, you know, the, the Vietnam War and that the whole protest against that. That was an incredibly formative time for me. Mm-hmm. And when I graduated, I, I graduated with mostly with languages in German and French and, uh, you know, did okay in science and maths, yeah. those things. But once I got to uni, <laughs> I, I, I came down to Sydney Uni and I, um, I was doing honours in German and I was doing studying French as well for a couple of years. And, uh, but my overwhelming mm-hmm. desire became just to be involved in music and theatre. And that was happening at right. Sydney University with, um, with SUDS, the Sydney University Dramatic Society, and SUDS Workshop. And I, started, I ended up playing flute for one of their productions oh. in, at the end of my first year of um, uni. And I met uh, some really great long-standing friends in the theatre community, like Deborah Kennedy, who uh, people will remember from uh, Not Happy Jan, the uh, the Yellow Pages commercial. <laughs> uh, Deborah was wonderful, and Sonny Campbell, who um, became Little Nell in New York, and she um, she ran uh, Nell's Club in New York, where all the cognoscenti of New York, wow. and the touring English bands, everyone went there for years in uh, mm. in New York to Nell's Club. So I worked with them, and well, I call it working, but I was I was nothing. I had no talent. I had a load of enthusiasm, no <laughs> talent, and. Uh, just loved everybody and loved the experience. It was a very, very vivid time of <laughs> discovery and, uh, and you know, gradually, gradually finding out who we were as individuals mm. and what we stood for and what we might eventually become in the world. You said it. I'll just jump in. You said that um, at the school uh, before university there were a lot of stirrers. Do you think that was sort of the energy of the time in a lot of ways and, and that was sort of what you were embraced? Oh, look, into... look, the thing was I was one of the more shy kids mm-hmm. and I, that's another reason I think I got into theatre and music because I was, uh, especially going, coming up through primary school, I was very shy and uh, very self-conscious and I think uh, my interest in theatre was a way subconsciously to draw me out of that and to become my own person but I loved the the stirrers you know uh, Gus Gilmore uh, in particular but there was a whole bunch of them these 
kind of, uh, you know, testosterone fueled <laughs> young men who, mm. but th- th- there was a spirit to what we did. We all mm. seemed to get on famously. I don't know why that was. Maybe because we did, you know, we did have some academic clout behind us. We were, yeah. we were bright Smart. kids and many, many yeah. kids from Newcastle Boys High went on to do wonderful things. We had, uh, uh, you know, several who'd become Australian of the year and who uh, played cricket for Australia. That's where we, right. we just had, we were a very good bunch. And I think it might have been a product of the times, you know, the, as Bob Dylan said, the times they are a changing. <laughs> and he kind of sang that right at the beginning of our, yeah. of our time at high school. So we kind of, we took on those winds of change and, and went with them. And, you know, I suppose it was a larrikin spirit, I, I, but I must say it was, <laughs> It was incredibly good-natured and and generous-spirited, and we loved a laugh, especially at our teachers' expense. I often think that, you know, school kids uh, make up the best nicknames for teachers, and uh, <laughs> and they have an incredible sense of humour. There was one, there's one wonderful actor that I've worked with more in the corporate area than than in theatre. Mm. Uh, a wonderful Samoan New Zealander called Lani Tupu, and I worked a lot with his wife May Lloyd, travelling around the world. And um, we, we have a New Zealand sound recorder lives uh, not far from me at the moment, wonderful guy called Paul Finlay. And uh, I was talking to Paul one day about this work, this corporate work of going around the world. And I said, oh, yeah, I've been working with May Lloyd and her husband, Lani Tupu. And Paul just looked me in the eye. He said, oh, oh, you mean old twin shits? <laughs> and, of course, I fell about laughing I f- because... Paul said, well, you know, we went to primary school together in Wellington in New Zealand. That was oh, his nickname. Wow. And uh, my partner, my dear partner, Karen, does not like me referring to that story because she thinks it's just a little bit disrespectful of Lani's cultural heritage. But Well, times are changing, aren't they? <laughs> but I still think primary school humour rules to a, mm. to a great extent. I, I never want to lose that uh, <laughs> the ability to laugh at that stuff. That's for yeah. sure. So did you go from Sud's? To Lecoq or was there? Oh, no, no, there was oh. a in between time because I was really keen on playing music. I was playing, I was yeah. playing flute and clarinet mostly. But then at university, I met a fellow called Lindsay Pollack, who since has become a really um, amazing force in the alternate music scene in Australia. People may know him. He's had, uh, he's had something like 7 million YouTube hits on a, um, a clip of his that he's done playing a carrot like a clarinet. Uh, it's quite extraordinary. And uh, I met him at university and we clicked immediately. And he had just started making these um, wooden Renaissance flutes out of Australian wow. hardwood. Wow. And we played these flutes together. I just thought, this is magic. He had a tenor flute, an alto and a soprano. And when we played the soprano flute, which was about the same uh, pitch as a concert piccolo, the, the sound carried for miles. And so we started playing music together. He had just started living up at Terry Hills on an old chicken farm with another really terrific fellow called Murray Oliver and uh, a, a wonderful theatrical woman called Diana Roberts, whom, whom we called Lady George, because that was her character in the Mummers plays that we used to do. Mm-hmm. And I moved up with them to Terry Hills, and we spent a year and a half just playing music, playing these um, homemade flutes that Lindsay would make. And we used wow. to take, this was an amazing initiative that I still can't quite get over, but we were associated with 
um, a place in Edward Street, Chippendale, called The Settlement, oh, yeah. the Sydney University Settlement. And it oh. was like a sort of an after school and weekend I know uh, that hangout place, place yeah, yeah. for all the local kids, a great mm. deal of whom were Indigenous kids. Mm. Uh, so we used to go there and hang out and play. We would play this music and we would teach folk dancing to these local oh. white kids and First Nations kids. And we just got to know their you know, the Indigenous kids had, an, they were amazing characters, had this incredible sense of humour and uh, we kind of picked up on their, like their Creole speaking and we used to take them on the back of our truck. We had a flat back two-tonne truck. You'd never get away with this these days. But in 1975, we'd pack 10 of them on the back of our truck and we'd bring them up to our farm up at Terry Hills for weekends and take these uh, Indigenous kids bush walking, play music, muck oh. around teach them uh well we'd started learning circus skills ourselves like juggling and tightrope walking and stilt walking so wow. we'd teach them all these things all off our own bloody initiative which was just when i look back i can't quite believe it it was a really great thing that you, you know you just couldn't couldn't do these days mm. but that became we so we we kind of made up shows with these kids and we'd take them to some of the community festivals that they used to have at at the park at the glebe park and at centennial park and we gradually developed this into a show. It became kind of oh. a musical clown show where we got kids actually involved in being the animals, being the performers. And uh, eventually this became, after about a year of our doing this, this became Pippi Storm Children's Circus. So we kind of became musical clowns playing flutes and drums, clarinets, accordion, and uh, getting the kids involved. So we had an now we just had a, an amazing, uh, involving show with um, kids and their parents and whoever would turn up uh, in any, you know, in any open space, we, we could do it. And the next year in 1976, we started doing it as, as our gig. It became our life. We became very organised and we started touring Pippi Storm Children's Circus and uh, sort of our brief to ourselves was to go to really isolated places that never got any kind of entertainment, any theatre or music or anything from the education department. And we we, we went to, you know, isolated places all over Australia, New South Wales, Victoria, all through Western Australia, you know, wow. a six-month tour, Western Australia, Northern Territory. It was an extraordinary thing. But what we figured was... We weren't just going to come in and do a show for these kids. We also, we made 80 pairs of kid-sized circus stilts and we took them with us in a huge van. So we did workshops for the kids wherever we went, stilt walking, juggling, mm. unicycle riding, mm. and we became a kind of a travelling circus school. <laughs> uh, this was, it was kind of, it was funny because it was in the lead-up to Circus Oz, the beginning of Circus mm. Oz in probably 1977, we were just ahead of them. And we sort of had aspirations of being what Circus Oz became, but we never quite went that far. But as a children's uh, involvement circus, we we couldn't be touched really. And and we had a, a lot of fun times and a lot of back-breaking hard work, you know, picking kids up off the ground once they'd fallen on the stilts, which were tied on, we had to lift them up physically and mm. stand them up again. So uh, we ended up with uh, some back problems. <laughs> but that was an extraordinary, it was an extraordinary time. That, that went on for three to four years altogether. And during that time, I thought, look, I'm a musical clown here, but 
I want to get better at what I do. So I found out about this cult international school in Paris called the Ecole Jacques Lecoq. And I started making inquiries. Mm. I met a couple of Australians who'd been there because it was very rare in those days for Australians to make that journey and go to the yeah. Ecole Lecoq. Mm. But uh, because by dint of um, the, uh, the work we'd done in Pippi Storm, I was able to get a couple of grants to help me. And I saved up a lot of money. And uh, at the age of 26, I took off to Paris uh, for wow. the great adventure of my life, uh, being Paris and the school. I ended up uh, living in Paris for three years. And my, my couple of years university French came in very handy. And I still yeah. I still love keeping up my language and, uh, mm. you know, speak French quite fluently, even though I should speak German better because I do have an honours degree. But the, uh, <laughs> the German goes okay, but the French is just... Uh, it's the language of love and mm. it's, uh, you know, it really is my second language. So that would have been a turning point then. Did you find out who you were? No, it took me a really long time. All, all of it was part. Pippi Storm was, was a great, well, University Pippi Storm was a great part. Mm. Ecole Jacques Lecoq showed us a lot about ourselves. Yeah, like how? How does it work? Oh, well, you're, you're performing uh, at the school you are improvising. You're doing improv classes every single day in French. But the great wow. thing is it's a very physical school. It is, it's, it's about what I would call a Latin style of theatre. It's, it's like, um, you know, French, Spanish, Italian, comedia dell'arte, clown, mm. pantomime, a lot of physical stuff. We did a lot of mask work. It got us into our bodies. I have to say it, it, was, it was a total life-changing experience, actually, being able to find your own place in the physical universe, you know, by doing all this mask work, all this physical theatre and being mm. open to an audience and playing, performing, improvising, making up little shows all the time. You just, you found, you established your own spot in the universe and you became, I think one of the great products of this school was that you became very comfortable in your own skin, uh, no matter okay. if it was in front of an audience, if it was socially, whatever. You, you, it just gave you an inner confidence and an inner security because in particular, in regards to clown, mm. clown was one of the most uh, insecure feeling uh, approaches that you could ever undertake. When you were when we were uh, it, it, taking our first steps in clown at the school, you are exposing yourself so much. Mm. You become so vulnerable. You are allowing people to see in inside you to your most naive and ingenuous and your own absolute stupidity is mm. the only word. In fact, we, we had the most wonderful clown teacher who's now... Uh, long since left the school. In fact, my two years at the Ecole Jacques Lecoq were this teacher's final two years at the school. This was a man called Philippe Gaulier. He was a French father and a Spanish mother he had, and he was the definitive clown teacher of the school and then of the world. He's taught such people as uh, Sacha Baron Cohen and Emma Thompson and uh, has become wow. a, the renowned teacher of the world for teaching clown. Mm. And uh, he had a way of just getting, uh, very harsh ways, actually. Oh, yeah. He had ways of getting us to uh, let our own vulnerability pour out on stage. And it was uh, 
uh, absolute life-changing experience. And uh, at that school, not everyone uh, excelled at every style that we did at the school, but but I have to say that everyone found what were they, they would call an ouverture. Everyone found an opening into their own being at that school, whether it was in in tragedy or clown or mask or comedy de latte. And for me, I had gone there to study clown in particular because that's what I wanted right. to do. But I found so many other incredible stimulations at that school that by the time we started to get to um, to doing the, the clown work, it was the end of the second year, and I'd just about forgotten this is what I came here for. Uh, <laughs> and it was quite coincidental mm-hmm. that I excelled in it. Uh, I, You know, the odds, you know, what are the odds really? Um, I'd done well at some other things, but I, I did really excel at the clown. And uh, weirdly enough, it... Uh, what I found through Philippe's work, I found that a lot of my clown was based on who I was as a five-year-old child. Ah. I was an only child who, who was, as I said before, very within himself and very self-conscious. Mm-hmm. But I found a lot of those characteristics that I had as a five-year-old child in, in kindergarten in Newcastle mm-hmm. became <laughs> the essence of my internal clown. Does your clown just live in that child as a five-year-old? Is that... And it doesn't move around. Like, is it? Is the child is just one place in you? Is it? I mean, the clown. The the, the core of my clown was that five year old kid. And when I was starting to, to do improvisations, I could just go back to the psyche of that five year old boy. And of course, it expanded. You know, you you work with other people. You you play with others. You play with the audience. But there is an essence of that five year old kid that naivety and ingenuousness that mm. that would became the core of that that character and the amazing thing it was so confronting to do so confronting because you we really laid ourselves out uh, you know to be trampled mm. on but the um we never got trampled on because what people would say after i became quite proficient at doing the, the clown work and uh, uh performing some of the clown shows that we did um, people would come up to me after a show and they'd say, oh, Russell, that was uh, really uh, an amazing characterization you did, you know, playing that stupid, naive character. And secretly in myself, I was like, <laughs> well, it's actually me you're laughing at. It's not me playing a role. It is the essence of me. And that that clown work, it has, it has informed every single mm. theatre work that I've done since that time, whether it be you know, for the Castanet Club or for the Sydney Theatre Company, you know, for whom I did several shows, or, you know, as you, you know, with my with my one-person show, it, you know, there are elements of my clown mm. personage that come out in that as well. Oh, I want to ask you about improvisation and that leads into the Castanet Club, but what is the key for improvisation, would you say? I think really, truly, it's listening. It's listening and not try. It's 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 funny. It's a very fine line because what Jacques Lecoq used to say, he used to say, "Il faut imposer ton jeu." You must. There comes a point where you must assert what it is that you are playing. You must assert your humor or your uh, proposition. You must assert your proposition, but you have to remain so humble and listen. You have to listen to what your fellow uh, players are doing or saying and listen to the audience you must you know you, you you your nerves 
develop an incredibly fine edge for listening. And be, well, I think what we learn in improv, especially from Philippe, was being able to listen to a partner on stage and in your mind see 20 scenarios where this could go to. And you might propose one of them, but then your partner might go from that onto something else. So you don't, you have to let go of the really fabulous ideas that you just invented. You've got to let them go and you go with whatever is in the moment. And it's a wonderful process because it's not, it doesn't, you know, some people think improv has to be incredibly fast and snappy and you have to have a brilliant mind and you don't really, you can do it in like in a clown sense. It can take you 15 seconds just to take in mentally what your partner has said to you. And that is the jeu, that is the play, that is where the audience are watching the machinations of what's happening in your brain. And it doesn't have to be fast, it can set up its own rhythm. And uh, and when, you, when, when that happens and you feel an audience is with you and laughing with you and you, you are still in the process of creating a scene in improvisation, it's an incredibly exhilarating feeling. And, uh, and at school, when we had those feelings, what Philippe would encourage us to do, he would say, look, try to recall that state. You know, don't remember exactly what it was you did, but just try to recall that inner state, what was happening in your heart, in your mind, in your body, when that exhilarating stuff was going on. And that's what we would try to tap into in future improvs and when we would con construct sketches or shows mm -hmm. we try to step uh, to, to tap into that sense of of jeu or play uh and it was quite magical mm -hmm. and that takes us to the castanet club because that was a lot based on improvisation is that right well yes and no what i did at the end of the lecoq school i formed a little theater company over there oh. with a couple of brilliant performers an american woman and a dutch guy and we did quite a lot of touring in europe and eventually i got us to australia and we yeah. had a wonderful tight uh excellent show because we'd all been lecoq based we, mm. we knew, knew exactly what we were doing physically and rhythmically and uh, with humour, with dialogue, with everything. Yeah. And we constructed another show once we got to Australia with another colleague, an Australian called Ian Gunn, who had also just finished the school and was was one of the most brilliant, what we call an August clown, a naive August clown. He was one of the best naive clowns mm. I've ever known in my life and a wonderful man. And uh, so we had two shows in repertoire touring Australia. And um, these people in Newcastle, where we toured, uh, there was a theatre and education company called Free Wheels run by a director called Brent McGregor. And Brent knew, Brent knew about my work and he knew about this company that I'd formed. And he brought his theatre and education company along to see our shows. And they all, um, I don't think it's unfair to say, they all uh, blew their minds watching the, what, we'd, what we were doing because mm -hmm. they were trying to do things along the same way, like com comedia clown, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. But not only were they trying to do it, they uh, they had enormous talent within this theatre and education company. They had Stephen Abbott, Angela Moore and Glenn Butcher, who oh. a year later became the core of the Castanet mm -hmm. Club. Mm -hmm. And so Brent asked me to come up after our company Double Take had finished and uh, 
Ted had gone back to Europe and Claire went to live in Melbourne. Brent asked me to come and direct, to devise and direct a show for Free Wheels. And so we did this over a period of a couple of months and we all got on so well. We did a wonderful little, little show uh, which incorporated a lot of kind of Lecoq work, some clowning, and mm-hmm. but working with Glenn, Angela, and Steve Abbott mm-hmm. was just a revelation. These people were so great, and they said, mm-hmm. "Listen, Russell, uh, you know we know you play the saxophone and the clarinet and the flute, and we've also found out na- by now <laughs> that you are a decent guy, and you know you you're quite talented. Please um, come and have a look at this cabaret band we've just started. We've started a club." called the Castanet Club. So I went along and this time it was their turn to blow my mind Mm. because they had what I'd always wanted to do together was music and theatrical kind of work together. And they had it in spades. Uh, The music was rough, but excellent. They played lots of 60s covers. People would dance to it. And uh, Steve was the MC of the night. And this was the beginnings of his character, the Sandman, who, of course, yeah. went, you know, he went on to uh, do Triple J Breakfasts and Good News Week and lots of other things. Mm-hmm. But Steve had also this incredible working class upbringing in Broken Hill, Wollongong and Newcastle. And he tapped into this kind of yobbo, yobbo with a distance, I would say, uh, like a, a literary yobbo sense of humour. So he was a, a brilliant MC and had a, an incredible feeling for theatre. And it was sort of, you know, the aesthetic of the castanets was based around what he saw as being accessible music and theatricality for uh, an audience, very approachable. Mm-hmm. And then eventually um, we engaged Jody Shields to be our designer, along with Michael Bell and Therese Kenyon. And we uh, ended up having this amazing designed touring show. So we had the club on the one hand where we, where people would come and see us, but we also had the band that yeah. we took on tour for mm-hmm. altogether a period of, of 10 years. Yeah. The Castanet Club stayed together and we, we did a lot of really creative and wild and audacious projects, but always with uh, with the audience at the forefront of our mind that was it was always for the audience to entertain the audience. And, you know, politically, we felt that the fact that we were a large collective doing this incredibly creative project and and getting on so well and infecting the audience with this Mm. feeling of goodwill and bonhomie, uh, we thought that our our politics was was the personal. And I think we did inspire a lot of people and, and, you know, entertain and gave goodwill and, 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 I think uh, by the end of a show, if you came and saw a Castanet Club show, by the end of the show, you felt that you were part of our family. Mm. And I think that was the highest accolade we could give ourselves at the time, that the people thought they were part of our family. They felt so close to us. And, uh, you know, we had been as generous as we possibly could and entertained the people and were very sensitive to you know what was going well and what wasn't um... (laughs) it really reflected the times as well right the kind of ethos the creator of the times (laughs) what's happening with the exhibition so this was a long time coming it was a love such a lovely thing it was the brainchild of julie baird who's the director of the newcastle museum and her curator david hampton who's a wonderful fellow but julie got together with our former manager and uh designer Jody Shields, 
who was also my my partner at the time and uh, jody was the most fantastic designer and archivist and motivated manager mm. and uh, she was just a, a brilliant integral part of the castanet club i don't think i don't think the castanet club could have existed without her especially for that length of time she was mm. very much the glue that kept us all together mm -hmm. but julian she had the idea of the exhibition jody still had all our goods and chattels all our posters instruments uh sets uh, costumes wow. everything had been stored in, really? in between her ceiling and her roof <laughs> in her place and so uh this exhibition we all put a lot into it uh and it was to open on, I think, I can't remember the exact, but maybe June, the beginning of June anyway. And of course yeah. that had to be canceled. Then we were going to open again. Oh no, 10th of July. Then we postponed that. We were going to open in August. We couldn't do that. So the whole thing was quite, uh, it was a, you know, uh, it was like when someone's vacuuming and someone else pulls the plug out and the mm. vacuum just goes, oh, mm. you know, it was very, uh, it was very disappointing, disheartening. But as, um, as I mentioned uh, earlier that, uh, the social media itself became an event we had so much so much of a buzz and so much of our old material came out of the archives things that we'd never seen before some brilliant work on the ray martin show and <laughs> on hey hey it's saturday lots of oh. uh, lots of taped material that we, that we had from the old days wow. and um you know it's still it surprised a lot of us i think that it, it still stands up today because i think I think the spirit of the band still shines through, even though some of the material might be dated. But, but by the time, you know, when we were getting, you know, from year five to year 10 of the Castanet Club, we were doing a lot of our own original material. You know, songs, Steve wrote a, a lot of songs. Angie wrote songs. I wrote songs for my character, Doug Gargoyle Ormerod. Uh, <laughs> had some, some beautiful Yobbo anthems uh, because Dougie, of course, was roadie for Jimmy Barnes. That's where a lot of his material came from. And we had, of course, Warren Coleman as um, Bowling Man. I should mention that Warren and Angie were both NIDA graduates. So it just shows how far that a person can go if they rebel hard enough when they're at NIDA. They can actually end up doing something interesting off their own bat. They don't have to be thrust into a kind of a, a very straight theatre mold. They can mm. create. And, uh, uh, you know, and Warren and Steve are still uh, writing together, writing screenplays and, and films and TV mm. series and things like that. So the creative creativity continues and uh, mm. but it was brilliant at least to have a glimpse again of the band and we have i should say yeah therese therese kenyon and stephen clark uh compiled a book from the old oh. days of the castanet club 10 years it's called something like the castanet club a testament of a uh, or the history of a performing arts collective in newcastle which just uh it does recreate the, the band. It's a, mm. it's a wonderful book, which is available at castanetclubpress.com.au. <laughs> and what are you doing now, Russell? Well, since COVID, I haven't mm. been able to do my one-person show. In fact, my the last show of my one-person show, Who Am I?, was uh, performed, I, I believe it was the day before the first COVID lockdown. It was from... Friday the 13th of March 2020 oh, and I was playing in Coffs Harbour and that was How the day vicious. before lockdown and already <laughs> some of my audience didn't turn up because they were afraid of getting COVID mm. but that was um, that's the last show I've done but I practice I practice
practice some of my stupidity every day and I expect <laughs> to have the show come back when we can have audiences again post-COVID. Mm. Um, but that's, you know, as, as you know, because you did come and see my solo mm. show in the early days. Loved it. And it has to do with my, my exhilarating time my roller coaster ride on Sale of the Century on primetime telly a few years ago. Uh, and it's, uh, you know, I've managed to make a theatrical a maelstrom out of that experience. <laughs> and uh, uh, because it has a lot of the old television footage in it, I like to, mm. I like to say it's, it's the new older me versus the old younger <laughs> me to see who can be, who can be the more entertaining. And I, I must say, I'm bloody lucky that when I first was on that show on telly that, that I was at least, you know, vaguely amusing. Otherwise, I wouldn't be able. I wouldn't have a show to do if I didn't have mm. some amusing footage. So that's a, that's a bit of a bonus. You do training as well and inspirational sort of talks and help people find their voice. What or their persona on stage or their person on stage? What is the key to doing that? Or what is something that you maybe help bring people personal? you know, confidence, I suppose. Oh, uh, yeah, that's, it's, um, that's exactly, oh, look, I think that's exactly what I do. But I think everything that I've done in my life contributes to it, but particularly the Ecole Jacques Lecoq mm. and the Castanet Club. And also the, the corporate work I did for a number of years, I did a lot of, um, a lot of work with a, uh, a boutique corporate consultancy called Zafire International. Mm -hmm. And I got a lot of trips around the world working with top executives of quite big yeah. uh, multinational companies uh, and we what we were doing was actually to uh, give them a way of accessing their gut feeling because in the corporate world a lot mm. of people work from the neck up they're, they're mm. all in their heads so we mm. did a lot of a lot of physical work and I introduced the neutral mask which we had done one of our life-changing experiences at the Ecole Jacques Lecoq was the neutral mask. Uh, so I worked a lot with the neutral mask with these. It was amazing to see, you know, over in, uh, you know, in England and in France uh, and in Canada with the, these uh, executives of these big companies wearing the neutral mask. And, you know, me, here was I bossing them around, getting them to do exercises. <laughs> and But it, it's an amazing tool that does enable that? you to get your energy out of your head and integrate. Maybe, maybe it could even be, I like to think it's through the vagus nerve, which is kind of the mind-body connection in, in, our, in our being uh, that connects kind of the brain with the body, the vagus nerve. Uh, somehow the neutral mask manages to uh, uh, assimilate and spread that energy throughout the, the mind-body, throughout the nervous system. And it gets you much more in touch with your gut feeling. And that's what the principle of this company was all about. It was about getting in touch with your gut feeling, being able to access your intuition and uh, uh, self-awareness and relationships. So I learned a lot. Surprisingly, I learned a lot from doing that corporate work because it was, uh, at its time, it was world's world's best practice and I was lucky to be involved with that and I, the, the, the training work is not something I go and look to do but what used to happen when I'd be doing my one-man show yeah. uh, there's one really great example of this uh, when I was doing a season at the Parramatta Riverside uh, 
uh, and as you know, I always greet people at the beginning of the show, just say hello, welcome them into the, the auditorium. So I did this. There was a husband and wife couple and I welcomed into the show. And then, you know, I went onto the stage. And uh, later on, this person told me that as they took their seats, she whispered to her husband, she said, what are we doing in this theatre watching some, you know, ageing guy who won a TV <laughs> quiz show? What are we doing here? And her husband said, oh, I thought you booked these tickets. Uh, so it, it wasn't the greatest start for them. But right. by the end of the show, she was yeah. already looking up my website. And uh, she contacted me a couple of weeks later and said, look, Russell, are you still doing some of the individual training that you do? And I said, yes, yes. And she happened to be an executive at the Westpac Bank. Oh, and uh, wow. uh, we did uh, over, over, say, six months, we, six months, we might have done 20 sessions. I did 20 sessions with her where mm -hmm. I've, you know, I've kind of developed my own way of approaching people, bringing them out of themselves, giving them confidence, part of which is the neutral mask, but part of which is also the comedia masks. I have a collection of um, half masks like the comedia masks, but um, with their own unique characters. So I, I use those as well. And it, uh, and a little bit like Philip, Philip Gaulier, I'm also a very hard taskmaster. I have, you know, I'm, I'm very demanding. At the end of my classes with this woman, she got a really great promotion. And uh, three years later, she wrote to me, said, oh, Russell, what's your, um, what's your postal address, please? I thought, oh, she's going to send me a Christmas card. And a few <laughs> weeks later, um, at my post, I went around to my post office box and here was this huge hamper that I couldn't carry by myself. I had to go back and get my car. Uh, but she'd sent me, three years later, she'd sent me this hamper. Wow. And um, I was overwhelmed, really. And she said, Russell, look, this is just simply for changing my life. <laughs> so I thought, you know, I must have been doing something right. What is the neutral mask? Is it just a being still? No, not at all. It's all about the body and about movement about your place in the universe. It's, it's a mask that was invented by Jacques Lecoq when he, uh, when he was a young man and he was working in Italy with a theatre director called Giorgio Strela. And uh, the theatre company was called the Piccolo Teatro di Milano. And they were trying to revitalise the Commedia dell'arte, which had been a oh. lost theatre art mm. from the 16th and 17th centuries. It had died out. And... Giorgio had asked Jacques, you know, these incredible actors, we have to find a way of training actors from ground zero to be able to become a commedia actor, which meant a lot of things. It meant you had to have a real physicality. You had to be very fit. Your body had to be absolutely available at any instant that you had a thought. You had to be able to put that thought into action instantly. You had to be able to improvise. You had to have a great vocal quality to play your masked character, but mm. also to fill the hall or the piazza where you're playing. And you had to be able to be a great improviser. So Jacques, one of the first things that he uh, he came upon was this thing called the neutral mask. And with uh, himself, Giorgio, and an Italian leather worker called Amleto Sartori, they made these leather masks, uh, neutral human faces. So they were, they're slightly stylized human face. They're a mask without tension or passion. 
So they have a, a, a strange, a sort of an alien look about them, but they're a non-speaking mask. So they have a closed mouth, but you can see the person's eyes when they're working the mask. Mm. And this mask, when you are wearing it on a stage in front of people in a class, well, it's not a performing mask, so you really only wear it in front of a class, but mm. the questions that it asks of you and your psyche and of the very fundament of your being are extraordinary. It asks you all these existential questions. And when we started the Lecoq School, a lot of the first year was taken up with the neutral mask. We, we worked with it constantly all that year. And we found uh, it was not a prescriptive kind of class. We found, mm -hmm. we learned experientially. And of course, after each class, we'd be down in the cafe on the corner, which was Chez Jeanette, our, our little school cafe. And we'd sit around and we'd say, look, what is this all about? We, oh, we're lost. We don't know what we're doing here. Um, and we'd kind of exchange ideas. But one thing we did realise was after about three months working with the neutral mask, that all of us in our improvisation and our sketches, we had developed a stage presence. Mm -hmm. Somehow we had developed an incredible stage presence from using these masks. We could we could all command a space. It was an extraordinary thing. And uh, I will always use that as a tool when when working with uh, with individuals to, uh, you know, to help them, you know, in speech training or to gain confidence or to just uh, take their own place in the universe. It's a, it's a, an amazing tool. You can see it taking out of the, the face because we use our face, but there's a body that communicates so much in space. I wondered what the kind of clowns there are and what kind of clown you are. Well, I'm definitely definitely an August clown. I'm really the naive clown. Um, but there are different sorts. Generally, a naive clown needs uh, a straight person to play to play off. Like the straight person, you know, will order the 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 naive clown around, get them to do certain tasks. And then, mm -hmm. for example, the naive clown might say, "Well, look, you know, we've got to sweep up this this floor be, be, before the um, before the boss gets here. So here's the broom. Away you go." Then the straight clown will go away, and then the naive clown might get you know lost in playing with the broom or uh, yeah. find something you know to play with with the audience. And then you know then everyone. It's look. I relate it a lot actually to my beautiful dog. My partner and I have a a wonderful rescue dog called Miranda, who is a sort of American staffy um, slash uh, Mastiff slash Pitbull, who's the most beautiful naive clown. And when you look in her eyes, you <laughs> you will do anything she asks you to. She is just the most exquisite naive clown. And uh, um, that is, you know, that's why we get on so well, because I'm exactly that. But um, and it's often, you know, if someone chastises her, you will see that hangdog look that she gets. And that is basically my clown. It's great if, if someone gets angry at the naive clown or bosses them around, then they can really bring out that naivety mm -hmm. and they'll try their best to make up for whatever it is they've done wrong. But often, you know, mistakes are compounded. And in trying to do his or her best, like a clown is always trying to do their best, but that naivety leads and their lack of knowledge of the world leads them into making very human mistakes and with the clown the, the critical thing 
is always that humanity, that heart where you are connecting with other people. And, you know, I used to love it, like occasionally when I would do the clown, you'd see people would have a tear in their eye, you know, mm -hmm. because of some some hum, human uh, emotion that emotion. I, I had touched in there. Mm. And there are some wonderful clowns in the world, still wonderful, wonderful people who who can connect with that humanity in an audience. Mm. And I guess that's why I'm not so much a, a stand-up fan. I'm not, a, you know, I, I can admire mm. the cleverness of stand-up comedy, but it, it, it doesn't, it doesn't touch me because it doesn't reach the heart. It doesn't really tell us enough about our own humanity mm. uh, as the, the genuine clown does. Russell Cheek, thank you so much for your time and taking us for a trip through your life. <laughs> My pleasure, Regina. It's, it's sometimes, you know, when in an interview like this, you just think of things that you would never have thought of otherwise. It's great. Well, that was the entertaining Russell Cheek and if you are interested in the Castanet Club book, go to castanetclubpress.com.au and you can get your copy there.